Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts. Can you please help support this vital ministry? Discerning Hearts is a 100% listener-supported Catholic apostolate. Now through the end of August, please prayerfully consider making a sacrificial gift to help us raise $30,000 to fund truly life-changing Catholic programming and prayer. The financial contributions of listeners like you enables us to continue this important ministry. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Your donations are fully tax-deductible. As an independent, non-for-profit lay organization that is not affiliated financially with any diocese, our apostolate is fully listener-supported. Again, between now and the end of August, please visit discerninghearts.com to make your donation. Thank you, and God bless you from all of us at Discerning Hearts. Discerninghearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by Gary Machuda, who is the author of numerous books, including Revolt Against Reality, Fighting the Enemies of Sanity and Truth from the Serpent to the State, and Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger. He's also an instructor of apologetics for homeschool connections. With Gary Machuda, we go inside the pages of The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught, published by Emmaus Road. Gary, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love the gospel truth, how we can know what Christ taught. I have to tell you, it's special in so many ways, like your books. It's it's so easy to digest, especially in these complicated potential questions that come forward when we talk about the authenticity of the gospels and the scriptures, but in particular, being able to know what Jesus said and that they're true. So thank you so much for bringing this book forward. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. It's, you know, it's funny, my books, I accumulate all this research, and then I, I finally have to put it into a book so I don't forget it all. <laughs> so so I'm glad that uh, you, you enjoyed it and uh, found it helpful. Well, I hope you'll receive this with all the reverence and respect I intended when I say this, but it's like watching an episode of Law & Order. I yeah, that's what I was shooting for. Excellent. Because oh, I kept hearing these da-ding moments. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I was. I, I wanted it to be kind of like a detective story, where maybe someone who doesn't really know who Jesus of Nazareth is—they've he, heard the name, but not really sure he's important—to kind of take them on a journey and just keep raising these questions, where you you keep saying, "Huh, that is very peculiar, very interesting." Today, in particular, I think we really want to hold fast to our faith to that fundamental teaching of who Jesus is, and yet everything around us almost wants to take the world, maybe even other Christian denominations, and I'll include Catholics as well in this, that want to take the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, and lay them out like a cadaver. I hate to say that and dissect it. And they just leave people cold, and so it becomes confusing, and you wonder, wow, did this really happened? Did he really say this? I think it's it's important that we we go there, isn't it? Because as you demonstrate, we don't have to be afraid. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I like your analogy because that's a lot like how higher criticism is with the Bible. It is an autopsy. The problem is not only that, but also I think a lot of evangelical approaches to vindicating the gospel 
is they don't really approach the subject as if there is a real living community just like us who was there in the first century. And they don't ask the important questions because it's uh, they're focused on vindicating the text, right? And, but if you separate the text from the community that received the text, there's a lot of unanswered questions. And that's kind of what I hope to fill out in my book. It's fundamental, isn't it, to appreciate history? What was it, Cicero, that said, if you don't know your history, you're destined to remain a child forever? And that's the case in this and understanding the culture as well within the context of that history. And Jesus was born literally into the Jewish community in the Middle East who had a particular way of communicating with one another. And I think that's what you bring forward so beautifully is that you have to keep that in your vision too when you're reading the scriptures so you can be confident that it is indeed what Jesus meant to say, did say, and that we receive. Yeah, very good. If you don't take that Jewish context into consideration, you end up with basically what you see on social media today, where uh, people will propound that Christianity is just an amalgamation of Greek pagan legends, or it's just a myth or folklore. But, you know, Jesus chose to enter into the world in this community that already had a mechanism by which they could transmit large amounts of data accurately from generation to generation. And so that just doesn't fly in Jewish culture. And, you know, in my book, what I do is I look at the Gospels, not assuming that they're inspired or anything, but just to look to see, well, did Jesus actually tap into this mechanism? And what evidence is there that the Gospels were formatted in such a way that it could accurately reproduce what Jesus said and did? Yeah, it's more than just a biography, isn't it, the Gospels? There's an intentionality, a purposefulness in the way that the words are spoken. It applies to a particular type of rabbinic teaching style that is very, very important. And this helps to validate, as you show, why we can feel assured that this is actually what was said by Jesus. Yeah, that was one of the things that surprised me. You know, when I started putting all this data together and lining it up to to show this, this kind of formatting, there's a lot of things that I just, I think the average person, when they read the Gospels, just think it's Bibleese, you know, that's just how the way people talked in the first century or or even the, like the places where Jesus gives his discourses that, you know, that must have been a nice place or something like that. But when you look at it from the perspective of, you know, what evidence is there that there is this kind of memory encoding going on, suddenly you realize that what you think is just Bibleese is, is actually there on purpose, right? It's there so that people could memorize it. And even if they forget certain things, that they would be able to reproduce it, like knowing the features of the text. For example, when we were tiny little kids, we learned nursery rhymes. Yet, you know, later in life, you could reproduce those nursery rhymes with like word-for-word accuracy, right? Because they're formatted with a certain beat and they're formatted with a certain rhyme to them. When you look at the Gospels, you find the same thing, rhyme and rhythm, 
you find all these different formats that even if you forgot part of a text, you could remember it by knowing the format. This is more than just a storytelling community. This was a worshiping people. They passed down their identity through their stories in their domestic worship, in their home, and in their synagogue. What they hear, there's a desire to be able to pass this on, like you said, through memory. Because remember back then, they didn't necessarily have books. They didn't have ways of that everybody could have the text in written form, correct? Yeah. And when rabbis were trained, you know, one of the dictums was that a good disciple should be able to reproduce his master's teaching, even in speech. And I've actually countered this in my apologetic work over the years, that sometimes when you have somebody who is following a particular teacher very closely, they will start speaking like their teacher. Like if the teacher has a Southern accent and the person's from the Midwest, sometimes they'll actually adopt the Southern accent, you know, when they're recounting their, uh, the, the person that they follow, you know, his teachings, it, which is kind of cool if you think about it, because if that's true, the disciples of Jesus, when Jesus ascends to heaven and they go out into the world, their preaching very likely sounded a lot like Jesus, their master, because like you pointed out, it wasn't just a memorization exercise. They, they were trained. They were informed. It was like almost going to a law school, right? Because the, the master would ask questions and propose test case for the students, and the students would also ask questions of the teacher. So, and you see that exactly going on in the Gospels. You know, these little question and answer periods throughout the gospel, that's how rabbis train their disciples. I think that is really important, Gary, because it goes to the heart of literally the heart. Was it St. Benedict who says, listen with the ear of your heart? The scriptures will say, and Thomas Aquinas will reiterate this, that faith that comes through hearing pierces through the veil. There is a reason why this particular type of structure and the way that it was passed down to us, communicated, communion communicated to us, is vitally important to understand, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that explains why the, the gospel, you know, the memory of Jesus didn't immediately disappear, you know, a few years after the resurrection. It was imbibed by the disciples and they went out and they formed their communities, right, and did the same thing and passed on this from generation to generation. And when the time came and the texts were written, this this type of teaching was written down so it can be passed out and proclaimed within the community, it became really vital that, how do I want to say this, that it is passed on accurately that the, the, you retain all that. You don't mess with it. Like Maybe today, in what can be seen in some works of paraphrasing or making some changes to things just to help people understand a little bit better, that, that can be very dangerous. You have to be very careful, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And even more so, you know, there's this idea of the veracity of the gospel the truthfulness of the Gospels, especially now, you know, once we're moving away from the resurrection and people who didn't 
meet Jesus or saw Jesus with their own eyes. How do they know these accounts of the Gospels are truthful? You know, how do we know that the Gospel writers themselves didn't embellish things, right? And so in my book, I go through what I call the dare to verify. You know, it's an interesting way to read the, the Gospels. The analogy I use is when you go to a bank, if you have a check for five or 10 bucks, they just run the check through, no problem, right? But if you go to the bank with a check for, say, a quarter of a million or a million dollars, you're not going to go through the drive through right? You got to go in, they got to check the funds, they got to check your identity. They're going to make sure, and then there's going to be a five-day hold, right? Why? Because the risk involved with the bank, if this funds do not come through, you know, that's going to hit them hard. So they're going to want to verify. And what I do in my book is I show that the Gospels write lots of very high amount checks. They claim Jesus is not just the Messiah, but he's also the God of Israel, that he raised people from the dead, that he performed miracles. You know, these are million dollar checks. And for the original readers of the Gospels, it would have been incumbent upon them to verify whether this stuff was true. In fact, in the book, I even give some clues as to even while the Gospels were written, it it seems like the Gospel writers are almost daring the readers to verify whether the things they record is true. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John S. of Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. Did you also know that you can listen to Discerning Hearts programming wherever you download your favorite podcasts? like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or even on Audible, as well as on so many other worldwide platforms. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has a YouTube channel? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcasts, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. We now return to Inside the Pages. We're talking with Gary Machuda about the gospel truth, how we can know what Christ taught. Because some of the things that are in that gospel, I, a lot of us don't appreciate how radical it was, especially for a rabbi, as he was at the very least perceived by the multitudes, as a rabbi saying, 
I am. The I am statements alone, that was a tremendous change. And so that had to have been passed on accurately. Otherwise, there would be some serious problems, to say the least, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, it'd be hard to sell that, right? <laughs> if, it, if it wasn't true, that would be something you wouldn't want because people weren't expecting it and, and they didn't really even know they desired it, you know, that the, the Messiah would be divine and uh, it'd be the God of Israel who visits. Um, but here's another shocking one for you, Chris. It, the bread of life discourse. I mean, of all of Jesus's discourses, that has to be the most shocking where he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. And he goes on and on in very explicit language. And it's so shocking that this is the only discourse where Jesus loses his own followers just because of his teaching, right? It was just too much even for his disciples to handle. And I don't know if you ever noticed this, but when you're reading John 6 and he's saying all these things, right after he says it, you know, it reminds me of the old-time TV broadcast where there was a news break, and they'd say, we interrupt this program to give you a very important message, right? And then they'd say what happens, and now back to your regularly scheduled program. Well, the same thing happens in the Gospel of John. It's right after Jesus says all this, all of a sudden, for no apparent reason whatsoever, the narrator jumps in and interrupts Jesus' discourse, right? It's almost like we interrupt this discourse to tell you this. Okay, what does it say? Jesus taught these things while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Now back to your regular scheduled discourse, right? Mm -hmm. Why did the narrate, John, why did you have to jump in and interrupt this discourse to give us, you know, this little data about the synagogue? And, And really what it is is, He's daring the reader to verify it. Jesus just said something so amazing, so offensive to ears, right? You would even think maybe Jesus didn't say this. Maybe this was a myth or something. So John felt the need to jump into the narration and tell the people exactly where he said it and who was present. And it's almost like if you doubt Jesus said these words, then go to Capernaum and ask the people in the synagogue whether or not he said the things. You know, it's it's not just a dare to verify, but it's like a double dog there, you know. Mm-hmm. And the Gospels do that. They give the locations. They give the audience. They tell you which parties, you know, the Sanhedrin or whatever institution. You could check these things out if you were in the first century. And you better believe they did because they could lose everything, you know, if they followed a false messiah. The thing I find might be a challenge for many is the fact that the Gospels have a different way of describing Jesus at certain points, as you will, I'm sure, be able to point out to us as well, that there are like the Last Supper moments and many other times where they all agree. They seem to be describing the same event, but even in their descriptions, They're just a little different, and maybe that's where that door to doubt comes in for somebody who has actually have the four Gospels in front of them in a scripture, in a book, unlike what that listening audience would have had 2,000 years ago. The modern reader, at the very least, to maybe say, well, which one is it? Well, what did he say? And that's where that seed begins to creep in. Yeah. 
two things. First is that in regards to recounting what Jesus said, it's very, you know, somebody can recount accurately what was said and done, but they might color it with a certain choice of words in order to bring out further meaning, right? Vivid storytellers can say something that's very accurate, yet they, they might color, choose their words in such a way to bring out certain meanings that they want the reader to recognize. Right? So it's still accurate. It's just different. The other point, too, is there's a cool book out there. It's called Cold Case Christianity. It's written by an evangelical. He was a detective on police force, I think somewhere in California. And his expertise was going through witness testimony of, of crimes. When he picked up the Gospels and started reading them, he realized that they read a lot like authentic testimony. And he, he notes that, you know, if you're at a crime scene and you get three different accounts of the crime, the witnesses will recount different things, right? They'll sometimes be so focused on one aspect of the crime, they'll miss other things. While other people at the same scene would have a little bit more situational awareness and they'll include more details. And he said, you know, as he was reading the Gospels, it struck him that this is authentic testimony. In fact, if all the Gospels were exactly the same, then in terms of eyewitness account, that would speak to collusion, right? That they all colluded to give exactly mm-hmm. the same testimony. So it's actually those nuances and differences within the Gospels that actually speak in favor of its authenticity, not against it. Oh, I like that. We, too, also have to look at the translations that would take place over time. And it all begins from the Greek scriptures. Was it Greek? Was it Aramaic? Did he speak in Hebrew? Sometimes that can be used to get someone who is faithfully following the scriptures, and someone comes along and says, but hey, you know, what is it? It comes from all these different types of texts. That can begin to so some doubt too. Well, I don't understand Greek. I don't understand Hebrew. How did they know that? Am I making sense or am I overthinking it? Yeah, it's, you know what I found in um, social media with atheists is they would say, "Okay, even if I grant the evangelicals' approach that the gospels we have are identical to the originals, and I grant that they they truthfully describe what they say." All of that doesn't mean anything because how do you know that your interpretation of the text is the same, your true, right? That's a much better way of saying it. That, thank you. That's yeah. what I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's a good point. You know, there was a book, I forgot the name of the author, but it was written a few decades after the, uh, Luther. And the title of the book is 200 Interpretations of the Word, This is My Body. And he actually lists 200 people with different interpretations of those four words, right? Wow. And that's only a few decades after the Reformation. And so I I think that's a really good point, is how do you know, even if you have the text and it is truthful, you can demonstrate how do you know what meaning is. And the answer is sacred tradition. The early church didn't just hand down these texts and then forgot about them. Like we mentioned earlier, with that formation of rabbis and disciples, they passed on the meaning of the text as well. And so it's through the church we can understand the meaning and how to interpret these texts. And I think that covers up a multitude of sins as far as, you know, translation errors or copyist errors and things like that is 
you know, we can approach the text and understand it, even if maybe we don't have a good translation or there were copious mistakes. I think it's important for us, too, to appreciate that the scriptures are, yes, there for us to study, to get to know, to understand the times, the place, and to, quite frankly, to take these gospel truths that are passed on to us, but to take them into our hearts, to allow them, the Word, capital W, to speak into our reality today and and into our own lives. And that's why it's so important that what's passed on does have that authentic sacred tradition, that safety net, as it were, to help pass on these important, 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 sacred communications. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's the beauty of being Catholic is you're part of the same community that was there in the first century. You know, it's extended throughout time. And so we could hear the, the voice of our Lord by listening to the church and listening to the gospels as they're being preached at, at mass. And in a sense, we're kind of taken back to the first century because we're hearing the voice of the Lord through his body, the church. I'm not sure how this came about, but there's a a translation of the Bible right now called the Passion Translation. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a translation that's being used in some studies, even in Catholic forums, where the person who translated it said that he had received sacred communication, essentially, that through the Holy Spirit, he was taught the Greek text that's a little different way of understanding it. And so it's essentially his paraphrasing of the events of Scripture and the words of Christ and that communicating. Now we're kind of beware that we've got to really beware, don't you, Gary? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for all the reasons we just said. You know, it's uh, this is something how the early church, you know, they had to deal with people like that. For example, in the second century, Irenaeus of Lyon, who was surrounded by Gnostics. Gnostics was a heresy that they claimed that Jesus and the apostles handed down secret teaching to the smart ones. And so the rank and file got one revelation, but they got the special revelation. Mm. And Irenaeus, the way he destroys this heresy is to appeal to the church as a whole. He says, if you look in all the different places, all the different cities, all the churches known to be established by the apostles, you compare their teaching. They're all identical, right? They all point to the same faith. But these Gnostics, they don't even agree with each other. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, when you have multiple points of attestation that coalesce into a single point, then that shows it has a common source. And the opposite is also true. If you have multiple sources, but they differ from one another, then that's a sign that they don't have a common source or they have multiple sources. And yeah, I think that kind of speaks to this translation as well. It's like, if it's not jiving with what has always been held on to everywhere by almost everybody in Christian history, then you need to reject it because this is it's maybe the voice of a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Well, thank you for saying that. I think that's real important. And as it is all your work, Gary, it has been way too long since we've been able to have some conversations on your work. And I wish we had more time to talk about the gospel truth, how we can know what Christ taught. 
But I'm hoping that you'll come back and we can hit on so many of the other works that you have. It's incredible, the instruction and what you've been able to do. I would hope that it's very fulfilling, especially now in the time when we need your type of teaching. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to come back. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. You always have uh, great insights and you're easy to remember, like we talked about before we went out of the air. Well, any final thoughts today? You know what? I just want to thank you for having me on the show. And I'm glad I hit the target. You know, when you write books, you don't know whether you hit your target. And by you saying it was like a CSI episode or something, Law and Order. Law, yeah. yeah. I kept hearing the da-dings yeah. every time I, I read it. I, I totally, you know, you made by day because that's exactly what I was going for. Well, well done. Well done. And I'm so glad that, that the good folks at Emmaus Road and uh, the, of course, that arm of the St. Paul Center of Biblical Theology and Scott Hahn, they, they've also given you a big pat on the back because they were proud to publish this book. Gary Machuda, thank you so very much. Thank you. With Gary Machuda, we've gone inside the pages of The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to EmmausRoad.org, the website for its publisher, Emmaus Road or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Inside the Pages, Insights from Today's Most Compelling Authors.